Good to see you guys. My name is Steve. I am the lead pastor, and uh, I am so thankful that you guys are joining us this morning uh, here at Trailhead. Uh, We are returning this morning to our study of the book of Romans. We have, over the last couple of years, been working our way uh, through the book. We'll take a chapter, and then in between chapters, we tend to do topical series. But uh, if you're new to Trailhead, this is kind of what we do. We pick a book, and we just work our way through it verse by verse, and, and What's there is what we, what we learn, right? So this morning, just to give you a heads up, we're going over to Romans 8. We do get to start Romans 8 this morning, so grab your Bibles. Let's go over to Romans 8. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, grab one off the chairs around you. In our Bibles, we're going over to page 944, page 944. If you're using your app, that's great. Heading over to Romans 8. Sometimes Romans is called the... Um, the crown of the New Testament, right? It's, it is sometimes considered um, like the high point of, of like, it's hard to compare, right? I mean, the whole New Testament is, is beautiful and complex and um, timely, but Romans 8 is just um, unique among the letters. It is so well-formed. It is, from beginning to end, a phenomenal, uh, incredible exploration of the gospel. And if Romans 8 is the crown of the New Testament, or excuse me, if Romans is the crown of the New Testament, Romans 8 is the jewel in the crown. Romans 8 is um, the most sacred and beautiful chapter in this entire letter, at least uh, experientially. The entire book, of course, is valuable and given to us by God. But but the, the chapter we're getting ready to dig into... Um, has been seen by many uh, and has been experienced by me as one of the most encouraging and transformative chapters in the entire Bible. Um, From first verse to last, this chapter is one prolonged blessing from the Father. That's what Romans 8 is. Romans 8 is the Father's blessing given to us as those who are in Christ. I've been listening to the Old Testament in the mornings. I've, I told you guys a couple weeks ago that in 2022, one of my, one of my new habits is when I get up and I make my coffee in the morning and, and the rest of that, I just put on the ESV app and listen to the Old Testament being read to me. And every time I go through the book of Genesis and the beginning of Exodus, I am just reminded of just how jacked up everybody is. Um, I don't know if you've spent time in the Old Testament stories lately, but it is just a mess. I mean, it is just a mess. I mean, intrigue, betrayal, um, abuse, lying. Um, it is. It is. It is a mess, um, and it is striking. Not just in the general dysfunction of the families, um, but honestly, how much of the conflict arises from um, a desire for the father's blessing. Or resentment that they didn't get it. Uh, you think about Cain and Abel, the very first two sons, right? And, and in this case, they're not fighting for their Adam, their, their father's blessing. He's not ever mentioned. He's like the first absent father in the Bible. Um, but uh, they are competing for their heavenly father's affection. They both bring offerings to God. Um, Abel's offering is honored. Cain's offering is not. Cain, the older son, feels slighted. He feels like he didn't get his father's blessing. He feels like he's been left out. He feels like he feels threatened. So what does he do? <laughs> what any reasonable person would. He murders his brother. Um, he just kills him, right? That's how I get rid of the threat. That's how I get rid of the, my shame. That's how I, you know. Um, you, you go on, right? Um, 
Abraham, the, uh, the great patriarch of the Old Testament, the father of our, of our faith in many ways, um, had a son, Isaac, and uh, there's a lot of messed up stuff there that I'm not going to get into. And then Isaac uh, has two sons, Jacob and Esau. And um, Jacob, uh, Esau is the oldest son who in the culture gets the father's blessing. So Jacob, with the help of his mother, um, actually wears the 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 skin of a sheep because Esau is so hairy and um, Isaac is old and he's lost his sight and so he goes in and he smells like a woodsman and he feel and he steals his brother's blessing he steals the blessing of his father which leads to years and years and in generations honestly of of conflict and um, and and then uh, Jacob uh, is renamed Israel and um, and Jacob um, has uh, 12 sons. And uh, he gives one son, Joseph, a coat of many colors, uh, a sign of a father's blessing, a sign of the father's favor. And the other, other sons become so jealous that they go to kill him. One of the brothers intervenes, and, and, and instead of killing him, they slave him in, sell him into slavery in, in Egypt. And, um, but all because why? Because they felt slighted, because this kid had... They're the, you know, the, the Father's blessing. I mean, it's amazing to me, as you read through the Old Testament, how much pain comes from this need, this yearning for the Father's blessing, and this sense that we don't have it. Right? When you look at uh, the origin stories of most villains in, in, our, super, in, our, in our movies today, right? almost every single one of them goes back to, to these are just grown-up men working out their, their, their daddy wounds. From when they were kids. You know what I'm saying? Like almost every villain goes back to, to this kind of this same origin story of a kid who just wanted to really be loved by his father, impress his father, somehow just ended up always being a disappointment to his father. And now he's working out the existential angst of his rejection on the entire world, right? Um, the, the dramas that are so big today, which I, I'm not recommending them, I'm not saying you should watch them, but you know, everything from Yellowstone to Succession. Honestly, even arcane. Um, they are just stories of people yearning for the Father's blessing. Fighting for the Father's blessing. Listen, y'all, we long for the blessing of the Father. I believe it is a universal human need. Every single one of us wants to be blessed by our Father. To have him lay his hands on us. To have him put his hand on our head. And to speak words of life. Words of blessing. Words that, that impart on us dignity. And, and, and power. And hope and courage. We yearn for the blessing of the Father. Listen y'all, that's what Romans 8 is. Romans 8 is a chapter of the Father's blessing. In this chapter, God is going to be laying His hands on our shoulders, on our head, and speaking over us words of life. Because when the Father blesses us, He gives us all of His dignity. Right? He gives us all that He is, all that He has, all that is good. And this morning, we're going to be looking just at, at the first verse and honestly just the key idea in it. 
And what I want us to see is that for us to receive this blessing of the, of, of the Father, we must first taste the freedom of His mercy. In order to walk in the blessing of grace, we need to taste the freedom of mercy. So let's take a look at Romans 8. We're going to start in 721, um, the, the end of the previous chapter, and then we're going to be looking at 8.1 this morning. So we're on page 944. And I'm just going to read these verses aloud, verse 21. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God and my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death. Thanks be to God through our Lord Jesus, through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right, um, this is like an incredible transition from Romans 7 to 8, and, and, and if you weren't here when we went through Romans 7, all of the previous messages are online, right? This is actually the 36th message in the series, uh, and all of the previous messages are available um, on our website, on iTunes. You can definitely get caught up, but, but in Romans 7, we dug into the tension of, of what it means to follow Christ as those who are not yet fully redeemed. In other words, we, we have been redeemed in Christ, but we have not been fully restored, right? We still have within us the disordered desires that we inherited, uh, from, from the sin of our first parents, right? We're all born with these desires that, that are for good things, but pointed at wrong things, right? I want to, I have a good desire for significance, but it's pointed at the wrong thing. Like a promotion to my job, or or I don't know, fifteen hundred Twitter followers, or or some sort of platform that makes me feel important. You know what I'm saying? Like it's a good desire pointed at the wrong thing. And what ends up happening is we take good things like our jobs, our family, relationships, and we end up turning good things into ultimate things. We look to the good gifts that God has given us and we ask those things to do for us what only God can do and to be for us what only God can be. That's the heart of idolatry. And because we have these disordered desires that drive us, we are continually pursuing things that don't give life because the disordered desires by their very nature are deceptive. We don't know that they don't. (laughs) They make Promises that they can't keep, but we believe the promises. And so we pursue money. We pursue prestige. We, we pursue a body image. We, we pursue the praise of men. We pursue all of these things thinking that somehow if we can attain them, we're going to ultimately get what only God gives. Ironically, this isn't just bad behavior. It's good behavior too, right? It is that same disordered desire of the heart that can lead someone to go to the strip club and, and or end up going to church every single week, right? And you're saying, those are two totally different things. This is why people do good things for wrong motives. And this is why people do bad things, ultimately trying to get good things. We have disordered desires that lead us to try to earn what can only be given, to puff up our pride, to cover our shame, to accomplish for ourselves what we can only receive by grace. And in Romans 7, Paul is wrestling with that. 
Like, man, I see this, this sin, this, these disordered desires waging war with me. And I want to follow God, and I want to love God, and, and I want to walk in the fullness of life that Christ has won for me. But simultaneously, I am wrestling with these deep, dark desires that keep leading me in the wrong way. On the one hand, I'm like a butterfly that, that wants to, to be in the sun and in the air and, and, and just be free. And on the other hand, I want to be a spider in the darkness, right? Feasting on death. I have these conflicting desires. Oh, wretched man that I am. That's his conclusion in Romans 7. And what I love is that he doesn't give us advice on how to overcome this conflicted uh, inner turmoil. He doesn't, he doesn't give us a five-step easy plan. He doesn't say, here's how you can actually overcome it. Here's how you can improve yourself so that you no longer have this struggle follower of Christ. He, he, doesn't, he doesn't in any way give us advice or, or, or tips on self-improvement or ways that we can fight better. He doesn't do any of those things. At the end of the chapter, instead, we find himself simply throwing himself on the mercy of God and giving thanks for the grace of God, right? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord, right? Even though I serve God with my mind and in my flesh, I serve the law of sin. Even though I am this conflicted creature, even though I despise myself at times, there is therefore now no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. There is no condemnation. What an incredible transition. Before we dig into the technicality of Romans 8 and really start digging in to this verse this morning, what I want to do is kind of set the stage really for the entire chapter for this morning, but but also for the entire chapter of Romans 8. In order to do that, we're actually going to be going over to a different passage this morning. Um, those of you who have been around for a while, you know that, that I tend to cycle back to the story of what's known as the prodigal son. Uh, it is one of my favorite parables in the entire Bible. And we're going to go over that this morning because I think it's actually an incredible introduction to the themes of Romans 8 and, and an incredible introduction to Romans 8 1. So I'm going to ask you to flip over there this morning. Go ahead and take your Bibles and we're going over to page 874 in our Bibles. In your Bible, we're going over to Luke 15. Luke 15, got your app, just go ahead and type it in. Sorry to make you do all this turning this morning, Um, but we're going over to Luke 15. We're looking at verses 11 through 32. This is the parable commonly known as the parable of the prodigal son. I think that is misnamed, right? Verse 11 of uh, Luke 15, I guess I need to turn there too. Verse 11 of Luke 15 says, and he said, that's Jesus speaking to his audience, there was a man who had two sons. All right, Jesus never calls us the, pro- the parable of the prodigal son. Uh, better put, he says, this is the parable of a man who had two sons, right? So, so I think a better title would be the parable of the two sons, or even better, the parable of the crazy father, right? Tim Keller actually calls this the parable of the prodigal father. Now, we think of prodigal, we've redefined the word prodigal because I think we've misunderstood what it means. Prodigal for us often means somebody who wanders away and gets lost. The word prodigal actually means wasteful. That's what the word means. And so when we talk about the prodigal son, we talk about the son who wasted everything that was given to him. But the true person who's genuinely wasteful in this story, and I think the real focus of the parable, 
is the father. The father is prodigal. The father is wasteful, as we will see, right? Take a look at verse 12. And the younger of them, the younger of the two sons, said to his father, Father, give me the share of the property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. All right, the younger son, I I want to give you the cultural context here because, you know, we're told up in verse 1 of this chapter that, that Jesus was teaching and tax collectors and sinners gathered around him, people that tended to to come near Jesus because they received grace. People that, that were unpopular in broader culture found grace with Jesus. And, and the, the Pharisees were also there because they liked to learn from him and hear him and study him. Um, and, and they were always like, this guy has a tremendous amount of influence. So they, they felt a little bit of competition with him. And they were judging him for being near sinners. And so that's kind of the context. And I want you to, I want you to get their reaction because the younger son here is in fact... Um, doing what shouldn't be done. The younger son is dishonoring his father by asking for his inheritance before his father dies. Um, he is essentially coming to his father and saying, hey, you know, would you like act like you're dead? Would you be dead to me? That way I could get your stuff. And if I get your stuff, I'll get out of your hair because I know I've been driving you crazy, right? I'm... I'm I'm not like my older brother, right? He's out in the field working diligently right now. That's not me, right? So, so why don't we do this, Dad? Why don't you just be dead? And when you're dead, you give me my inheritance, and I'll be cool. Now, in this culture, I mean, that's, that's shocking enough for today. But in this culture, this is a shame-honor culture. In this culture, for a, a son to disrespect his father was, in some cases, actually a capital offense. Like, you could actually put, be put to death for dishonoring your father. That's how seriously they took shame and honor in this culture. It was actually a form of, of economic power. A family that had a lot of honor actually got better deals in the marketplace. They, they had doors of opportunity open to them. You, you wanted to have a high level, level of honor in this culture because it was, it was, it was their form of, of, it's kind of like what we would consider fame today. Like in our culture, People who are famous, they just get everything, right? They get the good tables. They get the reservations they never made. They, they get the best deals. They, people give them things, right? They can afford everything, but they're given everything. Why? So that you'll wear it because if people see you, then they'll want to buy it, right? Shame and honor in this culture was like fame in ours. It was, it was what everybody craved. And this son violated the, the, the central more of honor your father, right? He comes and he basically says, Dad, will you, will you die? And not only that, it disrespects his older brother because the older brother as the first would be the one who would actually receive the inheritance and then distribute it among the rest of the household. So he's bypassing the order of birth. He's bypassing the order of culture and basically saying, hey, dad, I'm just going to go straight to you. And so uh, in this culture, um, the son is, is covering himself with shame. But you know what's amazing is that the father actually does it. The father actually honors the request and he divides everything up between both of his sons. As shameful as the son is, what I want you to catch is that the father covered himself in even greater shame by actually hearing and responding um, and, and, and yielding himself to this request, right? Take a look at verses 13 through 16. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all that he had and took a journey into a far country. 
And there he squandered his property in, in reckless living. Again, no surprise in the story here. Verse 14, and when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens so, uh, of that country who sent him into the fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate. And no one gave him anything. All right, what we have in these three verses are like this, just a really quick summary of his slide into total degradation, right? Um, he goes and with his money and, and his newfound resources, he's the life of the party. And you guys know how that works. When you show up and you're paying for the party, there's a lot of people who party with you, right? Money buys a lot of friends, right? And, and, and so he was the life of the party. He, wherever he was, the party was there. And then when the money ran out, like, like he couch surfed. You know, like, like he had won enough goodwill that, that for a while he could kind of just coast on the goodwill he had purchased, right? He could, he could just kind of go from house to house and sleep and crash on different guys' couches. But then a famine arose in the land. And there's nothing that's going to reveal the nature of friendship like suffering. When a time of suffering came, his friends checked out. All of the, the handouts were gone. Um, when it came time to to uh, either take care of themselves or help take care of him, they were done. And so he ended up having to rent himself out, uh, take a job to someone in this far country. Um, and he was no longer in a Jewish community. He was no longer surrounded by people of his own Jewish heritage. He was outside of that. He was in a Gentile area, and, and this guy was a pig farmer. And so he ended up, up out in the uh, the field with pigs. He's working in the, in the field feeding pigs. I don't know if you've spent much time around pigs. Um, being out in the field with them is not a pleasant thing, right? I have not. I'm, that's not my background. Uh, grew up in California, skateboarder, right? Concrete jungle, that was my thing. Um, but I remember the first time I saw a pigsty. It was not pleasant, right? Uh, when I realized that, that the, the big puddles they were laying in weren't water, right? Pigs are filthy animals, but it's not just their physical filth. It's the fact that they are ceremonially unclean. In the Jewish um, tradition, in the law, they were unclean animals. And so for a Jewish person to actually touch a pig was as defiling as them touching a dead body. It required them to go through stages of purification. It required them to go and have ceremonial washings. It might require them to burn their clothing. I mean, it was, it was, it was absolutely defiling. And so in this story, the hearer is going to be like, yeah, this kid ended up exactly where he should have ended up. His disrespect has led to his complete defilement. He is now covered from head to toe in shame, in defilement, right? And it's so bad that he's actually jealous of the pigs. He's looking at what they're eating. And he's like, man, those pods look good. That's better than the slop I'm being fed, right? Um, and, and, and so we see him in, in complete defilement. Take a look at verses 17 through 19. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. I love, love, love the beginning of 17. When he came to himself. You know, there is something about hitting rock bottom that can do really, really good things for us. 
Because when he got to the end of himself, when he got to the end of his strength, when he got to the end of his plan, when he saw how, how when he got everything he wanted, it led him to this place, he suddenly realized that he had been enslaved by his disordered desires. He suddenly realizes, I was looking for, for I had a good desire for pleasure, a good desire for significance, a good desire for deep soul rest. I don't know what drove him. It was a good desire, but it was set on wrong things, right? Self-indulgence, partying, the attention of others, being famous among his peer group, whatever it is that was driving him. He realized in that moment that his orders, his, his desires were disordered came to himself. He was able to actually see his motivations. He was actually able to not just see the degradation of his behavior, but actually come to see himself, not as the hero of the story who was being thwarted by this ogre of a father who wouldn't let him have the freedom that he craved, but as a selfish, self-centered man who felt entitled and was driven by his entitlement. And he came to see that his father wasn't the ogre that he imagined him to be. That his father, in fact, wasn't the one blocking him from freedom, wasn't the one who was holding him back from joy. Everything he had, this narrative he had created about himself and about his home and about his family, it suddenly evaporated in the midst of the suffering and he could see what was real. That his father had not only treated him well, but his father was in that moment actually treating his servants better than he was being treated. He had pursued his own, his own heart. He had built his own kingdom. And, and, and now he realizes that it is better to be a servant in his father's house than a king in his own kingdom. So he climbs out of the mire and he takes the long walk home. Now remember, he has no money. Right? He, he, doesn't have, he can't go buy new clothes. He, he doesn't have the ability to you know, just swing by Jerusalem and go through the ceremonial cleansings of the temple and, and get himself all cleaned up so that he can present himself in, in his best light to his father. No, he's, he knows, even as he's making this long trudge home, that he's going to be showing up to his father's home literally covered in his shame from head to toe. He is going to be showing up physically and spiritually exposed and vulnerable. And all he was hoping for was that he might receive just enough mercy that he could be received as a servant. He has no hope of being received as a son. But he thinks, man, my dad, he's a generous guy. I remember that. Maybe I can go back and be a slave. And maybe I can go back and spend the rest of my life trying to pay back what I took. And just, just labor as a slave in the house. That would be better than being a king in, in my kingdom of filth. Listen, he knew he had forfeited his right to be a son when he had declared his father dead, that he had actually committed familial treason. That coming back from that really wasn't a reasonable hope. He saw his defilement, he saw his sin. He saw that he had not just broken rules, but he had broken trust. Now, the Jewish listeners to the parable at this point in the story would be like, yeah, okay, the story's going to get back on track, right? This is, this is a good story. The kid got what he wanted, and he, and he sees his complete defilement, and now that boy, hmm, let's make him grovel. 
right? Let's make him crawl back and earn the favor that he has squandered. Let's make him work to regain some of the honor that he has wasted, right? You want mercy? Great. Pay the price of justice because the father would be fully justified in showing just enough mercy to receive him, but execute just enough justice to make him pay for it. So look at verse 20. Verse 20, and he arose and he came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. All right. Uh, this is not the turn that the Pharisees expected. <laughs> and I'm guessing it didn't necessarily impress them or make them happy. It's actually rather shocking. Right? The father sees him from a long way off. What does that tell us about the father? He was waiting. He was watching. He hadn't written his son off. He hadn't, he hadn't crawled back into his home to nurse his wounds and, and, and nurse his bitterness and nurse his resentments and, 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 and nurse the fact that he had lost his honor and that he had been betrayed. No, he, he never stopped being eager because he knew that his son was being driven by disordered desires. He knew that his son was going to come to ruin. He knew that no matter what his son was given at that stage in the game, he was going to use whatever he was given to destroy himself. But that didn't ever make him stop yearning for his restoration. He was watching for his return. And when he saw him, it says when he was still a long way off, which means he was watching and and watching carefully, he ran to him. All right, y'all, in this culture, Jewish men don't run. (laughs) That's, That's not what Jewish men do, right? He is the patriarch of the family. And I know for many, the term patriarch is, is kind of a bad term because it, it indicates potentially the abuse of authority. But, but patriarch can also be a term of, of honor, right? When we talk about the patriarch and the matriarch of a family, what we're talking about are, are people who have for years and maybe even dozens and dozens of years laid down their lives for the good of the family. They've earned a position in the family of honor. We don't do this real good in America. We do not honor our elderly. We do not honor our parents like they did in the ancient Near East in a culture of shame and honor. The patriarch and the matriarch of the family were esteemed and held up and were expected to wear that dignity with honor, right? For the father to pull up his robes and run down the road toward his son was to publicly display a lack of honor. He was once again being wasteful. Once again, being prodigal with the dignity and with the honor that was due his position. But he did it, the text tells us, because he felt compassion. Compassion is, is more than just pity, it's affection. The Greek word for compassion, uh, for compassion, um, uh, splunk needs um, you don't need to know that. I just like the word. Um, when I was first learning Greek, there are certain Greek words that stood out to me and, and splunkna was one of them. I don't know why. Splunkna just means your bowels. Okay. That's what it means. Your bowels. And so when it talks about splunk needs it means you feel it in your gut. Right? And it often means affection or compassion or, or, or love. Okay? But it's talking about not just, uh, oh yeah, uh, you know, like, like saying, it means you actually feel it. You know what I'm saying? Have you ever, 
I don't know if you ever never felt it. I'm sorry for you, but but that you feel it in your gut, right? That that affection that it's like it moves you, right? The father is moved with affection. He runs because splagnizomai, because it is in his, his gut. He is filled with, a, with pity and affection and love. And when he gets to him, what does he do? He embraces him. And he kisses him. Y'all, he's still covered in his filth. He still smells to high heaven. He has just been living in a pigsty, literally a pigsty. And the Father envelops him in an embrace, holds him to his chest, and kisses him. He didn't send out a servant, which would have been merciful enough, He didn't demand him to get cleaned up first. You know, like, hey, run down there and get my son. He's coming home, all right? Take him out into the courtyard and hose him down. Give him some some of your clothes. And then tell him when I'm ready, he can come see me. And it wouldn't have been uncommon in a culture like that for him to have to walk in on his knees to grovel. To physically show obeisance, to show his, his, his humiliation before the person of dignity. Now, the father ran to him, embraced him, and kissed him. The servants and the neighbors that saw this would have been scandalized. The prodigal father was once again just giving away his honor. By embracing him. Listen, think about what that means. When he embraced his son, what was he doing? He was taking his son's shame into himself and covering his son with his honor. Take a look at verses 21 through 24. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. He's beginning the speech that he had prepared while he was in the pigsty. But the father said to his servants, I love this. He just cuts off his son. It's like, it's not that he's not listening to him, but he's not listening to him, right? It's like, I don't need to hear your spiel, right? The father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe. Put shoes on his feet. Right, put a ring on his hand and put shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate for this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Right, bring new robes. Not just clean clothes. Not just, hey, bring him some of the, the, the servant's rags. Like, bring him, bring him a new robe. And not just a new robe, the best robe, it says. Like, like, remove his shame and give him the best robe. Right? Don't just wash away the dirt. Don't just try to clean up his record a little bit. Give him a new record. Don't just smudge away a little bit of the dirt off his identity. Give him a new identity. Don't just have pity on his shame. Remove it. Put a ring on his finger. 
That's not just a decoration. The ring was used in the house as a sign of honor. Somebody who had the father's ring had the father's authority and could make deals and seal deals. Somebody who wore the ring of the father had the authority of the father. He restored to his son the authority of the house. And he says, put shoes on his feet. Slaves didn't wear shoes. Shoes were a luxury. And in fact, only the father of the home, the one in authority of the home, could wear shoes in the home. Right? And they often had two pairs of shoes as a sign of honor. They had a pair of shoes for walking in the street and another pair of shoes that were purely for the house. Put new shoes on his feet. Clothe him from head to toe in my dignity. Clothe him from head to toe in my authority. Clothe him from head to toe in my blessing. And now let's have a party. Go get the fattened calf. Now, for us, um, again, we're, we're a very indulgent culture. The idea of having, you know, meat with meal is, is that's just normal. Um, for them to kill the fattened calf was a big deal. It was a big deal, like a once in a year type of big deal. And when you did it, it wasn't just for you, right? It wasn't just a, a quiet little peaceful. When you killed the fattened calf, it was, it was, they were not an individualistic, isolated culture like ours. They were a communal culture. And so when they killed the fattened calf, they not only invited the entire household, which would have included extended generations of the family and all the servants of the family, but they would have invited the neighbors. Like, like let's throw a party. Like, let's, my son was dead and he's alive. My son was lost, and he is found. Man, it is time for a party. How do you think the community would have reacted to that party? The party where the son is... Is, is celebrated in spite of his dishonorable behavior. The party where the father's honor and dignity was wasted. Where what shouldn't be honored seems to be honored. Where what shouldn't be celebrated is being celebrated. They're still going to show up because they like the fatted calf. <laughs> Everybody likes a good party, Right? They're going to show up and they're going to feast, but, but what's their attitude toward the Father going to be while they're feasting? What an idiot. They're going to be smiling because they like what they're receiving, but they're going to be laughing in derision because of what they disrespect about the prodigal father. How do you think the older brother is going to respond to this? The older brother who has been faithful, the older brother who's kept all the rules, the older brother who has never stopped serving and working and performing and doing what was right. How is the older brother going to respond as the rule keeper who has kept all the rules and done all the right things and has earned the honor of his culture? Should be clothed with the respect of his neighbors. And now he has to come to a party where his prodigal father is celebrating his degenerate brother. You think he's going to be thrilled about that? A party where he is not going to see the celebration of joy, he is going to see the celebration of foolishness and a display of his own degradation because it's his family, his name. 
Yeah, the father's, the brother's not going to respond well, but, but take a moment and just think about this, y'all. What does this tell us about the father? What does the father value? See, what this tells us is that the father was wasteful with what the world valued. But he valued what the world thought was a waste. He had an inverted value system. A value system that wasn't reflected in the community, wasn't reflected by his neighbors, wasn't reflected by what was celebrated around him, but was, according to Jesus, in line with what was true. He valued the redemption of a sinner more than the honor and dignity that was his right. He was wasteful with his dignity. He was wasteful with his reputation. He was wasteful with his possessions. He was wasteful with his wealth. He was wasteful with his affection. But it was because he valued something more than his dignity, more than his reputation, more than his wealth, and more than his possessions. He valued his son. He valued love. And love was more important to him than all the praise the world could heap upon him. All the so-called honor he could accumulate to his own name. He would rather be clothed in the shame of his son if it meant his son could be clothed with the honor that was his own. In the world's eyes, that kid was worthless. But to the father, he was worth everything. And the father gladly wasted everything else to see him returned and restored. This was a shocking mercy and a scandalous grace. And where others found derision in the party, that was not, that was not an indication of the father's lack of dignity. It was an indication of their lack of a sense of reality. The father was the only one who saw clearly in this entire story. The father's the only one that knew what was truly valuable. The father was the only one that acted in accordance with what was genuine and real in this world. How everybody else reacted to them didn't, didn't, didn't reveal anything about the father. It revealed things about them. Listen, he was merciful and he was gracious. Mercy is when we don't get what we do deserve. That's mercy. And grace is when we do get what we could never earn. They're a little bit different, but here's what I want you to get. Mercy is the foundation of grace. We have to not get what we do deserve in order to enjoy getting what we could never earn, right? It wouldn't have done the son any good to be given a new robe and a new ring and new shoes and then to be carted off to a debtor's prison because he got what he deserved, you have to receive mercy. That is the foundation of being able to walk and stand in, in grace. Mercy and grace are the twin sisters of the blessing. To be given what you can't earn isn't going to do you any good if you still have to get what you deserve. So you receive mercy. 
and then he was invited to the party of grace. Listen, you know, let's be honest. We love mercy and we love grace when we feel our need for it, right? When we say something stupid and the person we said it to legitimately forgives us and extends us mercy. Like they don't try to exact a pound of flesh. You know what I'm saying? They don't, they don't, they don't, they don't make us pay for it. They're just gracious. And then not only are they, they merciful because we said something stupid, but, but they don't hold us accountable. They then treat us like we never said it, right? They give us the grace of a, of a new, right? You, you know what that's like to have a friend like that. That's a gift. It's a beautiful thing. We love to receive grace, but we often resent it when it's given to others. Because when others receive grace, it makes us feel like we haven't earned we're not being honored for what we've, we've earned. And that's what happens with the older brother. Let's quickly take a look at verses 25 through 32. Just so we can see what happens at the end of the story. Now, his older son was in the field, and when he came and drew near the house, he heard the music. Dun, 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 right? He hears, the, <laughs> he hears the beat happening and the dancing, and he sees the lights flashing off. Not really, but you get it. Um, and, and verse 26, and he called one of the servants, and he's like, man, what's going on, right? What does this stuff mean? Verse 27, and he said to him, your brother has come, your brother has, and your father has killed the fatted calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. All right. You get it, right? You get it. You get why he was angry. You get why he refused to go in. It was perfectly reasonable. And in fact, everybody around him would have said, you're the only sane person here. But he was angry and refused to go in. Verse 28, his father came out and entreated him. All right, just pause for a moment. I want you to realize that the father's treating him the same way he treated the younger brother. The father set aside his dignity and ran to the younger brother. The father requested the older brother come to the party. The older brother refused to come in. So what did he do? He went out to him. He set aside his dignity. He went out to him. Okay, he's treating him the exact same way. Verse 29, but he answered his father, look, these many years I have served you. I have never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me the youngest goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came home, he has devoured your property and with prostitutes, you killed the fatted calf for him. All right, it's not about the calf, y'all. What he's saying is, I earned what he's been given. He could have been given it all along. He never asked for it. What he resented, not was that it was, that it, that it, that it was accessible to him. What he resented was that it was being given to somebody who didn't earn it like he did. That seemed to minimize his accomplishment. That seemed to minimize his honor. For his honor to be celebrated, he needed his brother's dishonor to be despised. His pride required not only his own celebration, but the ruin of the one who didn't measure up like he did. Verse 31, and he said to him, son, you are always with me and all that is mine is yours. Look, it's, you've had my blessing as much as he has. It is fitting that we celebrate and be glad for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. The older brother despised the father's mercy. And the Father's blessing. Because he didn't feel like he needed it. He didn't need grace. He had earned what he had. And this is the danger with our religious performance and our moral self-improvement. This is the danger with our, when our disordered desires latch on self-improvement of a religious kind. Is that we often come to a place where we feel like we deserve what can only be received by grace. 
We feel like we have earned what can only be received by mercy because in our warped vision, we stop paying attention to our dishonor and only see the ways we have earned what we consider the accumulated honor of, of praise from our peers and we believe praise from our God. It can often make us feel like we deserve favor. It inflames our, our pride, projects our shame on others. And at the end of the day, listen, only one brother is at the party. Only one brother is actually at the party being celebrated and enjoying the blessing of the Father. The one who has received mercy. The one who is standing in grace. To be clear, the Father showed the same mercy and extended the same grace, but only one was able to receive it, and that was the one who felt his need for it. The the end of the story, we see the older brother self-righteously cutting himself off from the very blessing he craved. Because in the insanity of his pride and his self-righteousness, he would rather stand outside of the party celebrating his own uh, moral achievements than enter a party where everybody is celebrating grace. Listen, Jesus was speaking to the Pharisees when they saw him hanging out with tax collectors and sinners. And this parable was meant to be both an invitation and a warning, right? These sinners will receive mercy and grace And if you don't humble your hearts, they may receive what you lose. Your moralistic entitlement kills your ability to receive mercy as mercy. Because you can't receive as a gift what you think you've earned as a wage. There's no greater word of comfort for the one who needs mercy, though, than the Father's welcome. There is no condemnation. The beauty of Romans 8.1. There is therefore now no condemnation. The prodigal father in this story is obviously an image of our prodigal God. In the same way the father ran out to meet the son, our God ran out to meet us. He actually put on flesh and became one of us to meet us in our shame, to embrace us in love. And in that, he took our shame on himself to the point where um, he had to die, right? Because here's the thing, mercy is free to the one who receives it, but it's never free. For someone to receive mercy, someone must pay the price of justice. It's just that the other person pays the price on our behalf. God pays the price of justice so that we might receive mercy. God ran to us, took our shame, died in our place. He who knew no sin became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. 2 Corinthians 5.21 He ran to us. He embraced us. He took our shame and then clothed us in the robes of his righteousness. There is therefore now no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. I don't know where your disordered desires are leading you to try to find the fullness of life apart from the God who gives it. I don't know what bad choices you've made. I don't know what messes you've made. I don't know who you've hurt. I don't know who you've betrayed. I don't know what pains you carry with you because you've hurt others, because others have hurt you. But you need to hear 
There is therefore now no condemnation. The Father runs to you and He wraps His arms around you. He places His hand on your head and He kisses you. Because there is now no condemnation. There's mercy. And with mercy comes grace. Because mercy is the foundation of grace. Y'all, I don't, I don't have a great application for us this morning. I don't have 10 easy steps. There's no... All I'm leaving you with this morning is this. Will you fall on your knees to receive the mercy? I guarantee you, the younger brother never recovered from this. Like that shocking mercy changed him. There was never a moment when he got up and put on his robes and put on his ring and put on his shoes that he did not think about the scandalous mercy of his father. Where he was not undone by grace and renewed in gratitude and awakened to the wonder of love. If the mercy of God doesn't awaken your responding love for God, there aren't any applications I can give you. Because there's nowhere else to go with this. This isn't something we do. This is something we receive. This isn't a way for us to fix ourselves. This is a way for us simply to respond to the love of God that transforms us from the inside out. There is therefore now no condemnation. I don't care what you've done. And at the end of the day, you are not defined by what has been done to you. Because the Father runs to you to embrace you and to cover you with dignity. The only question is whether you're going to receive it. Whether you're going to fall on your knees to receive that love and to be ushered into that party or you're going to keep trying to earn what you could never earn to try to get where you can never get. To try to buy what you could never purchase. Receive it. I'm going to close this in a word of prayer. And then we are going to share communion. And we are going to, uh, to close out in song before we celebrate some baptisms. Let's pray. Father, I, um, I don't know where my friends are, are coming in this morning. I don't know what their heart needs are, what their heart pains are, what disappointments they're wrestling with, what betrayals have wounded their hearts, what, what, how their earthly fathers have either modeled this well or have, have, have wounded them with their absence or with their abuse. I don't know. Spirit, you know. Will you, Spirit, right now envelop the hearts and the minds. Lord, would you, would you help us to not simply hear this 
information, but to receive this grace. That we might fall on our knees, that we may not be thinking about our dignity or, or our accomplishments or our achievements or, or what we've earned or how we've measured up, but we might simply come in the brokenness of our need and in, in, in the, the vulnerability of our humiliation. Not to perform, not to impress, not to earn, but simply to receive spirit. Will you awaken within us the humility? That we might be undone by grace. That we might have our gratitude awakened and our entitlement silenced. That we might receive mercy and in receiving mercy to be lifted up and celebrated in grace. I pray for my friends that have never received this grace that they might receive it this morning. Those who who haven't believed in Christ, those who haven't received the gift of His death, burial, and resurrection this morning, that they would throw themselves at your feet for your mercy, knowing that even as they throw themselves down, you will be lifting them up. I pray for my friends who have believed but have grown cold, who have settled for religious performance and, and outward signs of obedience instead of internal genuine transformation of love that you would reawaken them that you would wake them up to the vitality of your presence and the overwhelming nature of your love lord meet us where we are run to us because we can't work our way to you and then give us hearts to receive what you freely give and we pray all of this in the worthy name of our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ, and all of God's people said, Amen.